Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are going to talk about single moms because Mother's Day is coming up and we need to give a shout out to the single mamas out there. That's right, because not only do we want to honor you for Mother's Day time, but we also want to take a look into all of the stuff, and I say stuff instead of a four-letter word, that you have to put up with. Yeah, because if there is a group that has been on the receiving end of just an overwhelming amount of stigma, Mm -hmm. it is the single mom. Yeah. And there are more single moms out there than ever before. But before we get specifically into single moms, let's just mention that single parenthood in general is on the rise. The number of single parents in the United States has more than tripled since 1960. And to take a look at parents who have sole custody of their kids while the other parent lives elsewhere. So these are called custodial parents if you want to get technical. The 2009 census report said that mothers account for the majority of these parents at 82.6%, a level that's basically statistically unchanged from what it was in 1994. Yeah, and we differentiate custodial parents from single moms. When we're talking about single moms, we're thinking more along the lines of women who were specifically unmarried at the time their child was born, uh, compared to custodial parents where 45% of the moms, uh, for instance, were either divorced or separated. So chances are when they had their kids, they were likely married. Right. And, you know, also take into account that some are widows. Um, a third of custodial parents had never been married. But you also have to keep in mind that there's, there's all sorts of custody agreements that couples, both married and unmarried, can have. And so we were talking just about custodial parents, those women who have sole custody of their child or children. Um, but if you look at the race and ethnicity breakdown of these custodial moms, half were non-Hispanic white, while more than one third were black and 18 percent were Hispanic. Now, if we look at to throw some more single mom data at you in 2012, there were 10.3 million single moms. This is single moms as distinct from just custodial parents. There were 10.3 million of them up from point. Four million in 1970. And uh, just as a side note, single dads, you comprise 6% of U.S. households. And side note, you also earn more usually than single moms, which is an issue we will get into more later in the podcast. Right. But also in 2012, the census reported that 36% of births in that past year were to single moms ages 15 to 50. Yeah. And there are that means that there are more more single moms at the time of their their first child's birth than ever before. I mean, if you just look at women in their early 20s, 62 percent of all new moms are unmarried. Now, when you hear all this data about unmarried women, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are having a child in isolation. Mm -hmm. That simply means that they are not married. Right. And so when Kristen and I, as we were going through studies and articles and things, it's easy to get caught up in the wrong path, which is talking about, well, the wrong path for this episode. And and that is to talk about unmarried mothers as if they have no support system or no partner or, or whatever. When in reality, if you're unmarried, 
you you might have a boyfriend girlfriend network of people who help you you might be raising your child with your parents help etc 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 yeah and and one thing also to not the, the, speaking of the wrong path uh, a lot of people might assume that the rise of unwed motherhood oh god that just sounds like such a hester pran yes yeah. um some might think that that perhaps due to the popularity of MTV's uh teen mom series that it is the rise of teenage pregnancies that are causing this not at all in fact don't get it twisted teenage pregnancy in the United States is at its lowest point in 65 years well so speaking of a little bit of history Kristen found uh, a little tidbit about a birth spike yeah, according to digital history, the most rapid increase in unwed pregnancies took place between 1940 and 1958. And if you also look at uh, teen pregnancy, it's not the more recent times, as we just mentioned, where you see the spike in them. It was actually, for instance, if you look at 1970, 50% of childbirth out of wedlock were to unmarried women under 20 years old. Yeah. So let's move out, though, of statistics and into a little bit of history, because I feel like any time we hear reports about unwed motherhood, childbirth out of wedlock, it's always couched in a a lot of fear and concern about these women and what this means and whether or not this just is a signal of our moral decline. And so we wanted to look at sort of the history of how, how how we have treated unwed mothers culturally, like within our societies, how have they been treated? Right, because a lot of the way that we view and treat single mothers today does harken back to earlier times. When you look at England and Wales, uh, for example, um, Cambridge historian Samantha Williams looked at an early form of welfare called the Old English Poor Law, Under this law, quote-unquote, poor relief was given out by the local parish to single mothers who, out of all of the, you know, unfortunate souls that they doled out money to, received some of the biggest handouts. Um, And if a single mother in this time, this is back in, um, before 1834 when there were a bunch of reforms, if a single pregnant mother wanted to claim poor relief, all she had to do was go before two judicial officers and swear on the paternity of her child's father under oath. Then they would give her benefits up front and the officials would try to get the money to pay for that from the father. But if the father had skipped town uh, or they couldn't find him or he didn't have any money, uh, he was required to pay back all the childbirth expenses, the legal expenses to pursue him and the regular maintenance payments for the child. If they couldn't get any money out of him, the parish itself would support the single mother. Now, not surprisingly, the parish does not want to support these women. I mean, a lot of times when we look at the stigma of unwed motherhood or just unmarried women having sex in general, it there's usually an economic side to this, which mm-hmm. is that if you go way back in time, who would support them? It would be the local government and or the church. Mm-hmm. And the church and the local governments have a lot of other things they would much rather pay for than these women who would have no way at the time of advancing themselves and really becoming way, like gainful wage earners in the same way that say an unwed father could be. Right. So they became, they were, they were seen as more these burdens on the system. 
And thus, naturally, you have the stigma right. to de-incentivize these kinds of pregnancies. Right. Well, be- yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it's not like during this time period, these women were going to just go out and get a job. Right. Just bootstrap their way through and pick themselves up thanks to just pure grit and pluck. Uh, they, they couldn't work. I mean, that was not how things were at the time. Yeah. The, the idea of Liz Lemon and 30 Rock being wealthy enough and, you know, of a social position enough to go to a fancy adoption agency run by Gina Davis <laughs> and possibly adopt a child, the most recent of phenomena. Rather, in the cases of, you know, women being, getting pregnant outside of marriage, you have the rise of mother and baby homes. I mean, shuttle the women off, mm-hmm. shuttle them off with their shame. Right. And it was ideally to provide support for women um, in the 19th century who wanted or needed to hide their pregnancies. Um, but it really was sort of like a, a shame house. Shame central. Uh, many of these women were pressured into giving up their children. Not all did. So that's why it's still relevant to our single mother conversation. But these mother and baby homes first appeared in England in 1891 under the uh, guide of the Salvation Army. And by 1968, there were 172 known homes for unmarried mothers, the majority of which were run by religious bodies. But they had a like a blueprint for these homes because they were predated by homes known as penitentiaries or reformatories for, quote, penitent prostitutes. So basically, like, get these scary, weirdo limbo women out of our way. We don't want to deal with them. Well, and they were also shamed in these houses because if you get pregnant, it's pretty obvious you've had sex before. Oh, my God. Wait, is that how that happens? I think it is. Someone told me that once. And for girls who would be sent away to these homes, they would be forced to, you know, constantly repent for their sins and were continually shamed. And then on top of that, you know, they're, they're, they were usually forced to give up their children for adoption. And as the BBC was reporting, these homes really turned into, they served a purpose because these are in the days before in vitro fertilization and different kinds of fertility treatments that couples could undergo. So you have the Salvation Army and other kinds of organizations managing these homes, they profited from all of the childless couples mm-hmm. who could then get babies and then pay money to support the organizations. Yeah, they were baby farms. Sort of, yeah. Basically, for those women who didn't get to keep their kids. Yeah, I mean, and that's focused mostly on the UK, but as we well know, people living in the United States, this kind of stigma also exists over here. Yeah, hello, Scarlet Letter. Um, but yeah, moving to America, uh, Linda Gordon wrote a book called Pity But Not Entitled, Single Mothers and the History of Welfare from 1890 to 1935. That's some good bedtime reading. Um, but in a review of the book, the writers are talking about how America's modern social policies towards single mothers really took shape in the early 20th century. This is really during the the progressive era when, you know, there's that whole Chris and I have talked about this before in the podcast. There's a whole worry about immigrants and women and children and safety and hygiene. And motherhood was a part of that. Motherhood was valorized by society during this time, including policymakers. Um, but part of that whole valorizing of motherhood was believing that you belonged in your special mommy bubble and that it should be full time work. 
And so if you were a single mother and you were, quote unquote, deserving of it, then you should, in fact, receive aid. But where this hurts poor working class women is that a lot of times uh, their upper class counterparts during this progressive era would construct these like rescue fantasies kind of in the media, like in magazines and whatever, um, to to throw support behind aid for young mothers. However, these rescue fantasies were constructed around the story of a widow who didn't or couldn't work and she needed help. Not working class women who maybe weren't widows. They had, you know, oh, my gosh, had sexual relations with a man and then had to work for a living. Yeah. And had to work for a living again in an era when they there there would be few to no outlets for them to earn wages comparable to what men could make and mm-hmm. truly become not just self-sufficient, but really climb up economically. And so all of that then is compounded by, you know, the the stigma of the outward visibility that they have had sex outside the bounds of wedlock. And I mean, talk about a scarlet letter situation, right? These women have been stigmatized by society for pretty much as long as at least in the United States, as long as our society has existed. Yeah. And a lot of writers focus on the 1960s as the turning point, but it's not like I mean, just we're in 2014 and it's not like all of our attitudes about unmarried mothers, single mothers have just dissolved. I mean, yes, it started to become more less less of a taboo, more of an accepted thing in the 1970s when we have all of these other social movements going on. But by no means were unmarried uh, or single mothers just suddenly accepted into society's embrace. Exactly. And one thing that jumped out to me when just looking around at different articles on the rise of single motherhood today, seems like at least among the more conservative sources that I ran across, that the real concern was the shock of single motherhood now among white women. It was like if you... You know, we a long time. I mean, going back to that progressive era where there was all of this like racist panic over the influx of immigrants and you have the development of the welfare system and how all of that gets kind of tied together where it's like, oh, well, you know, these people are a little bit more destitute. So we just need to help them out Mm -hmm. a little bit, but not too much, you know, because we don't want them to take our jobs and stuff. But now that it's also white women getting involved, it's just I mean, the panic that has taken place. Is it's kind of it's very telling. Yeah, and I, I think that whole kind of changing demographic trend, uh, the idea that we can't easily pigeonhole single unwed mothers as being one monolithic block that we can pity, I think that throws a lot of people. And I think that uh, well, I know that attitudes today are generally pretty disapproving, regardless of who the single mother is. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how despite. The statistical rise of unmarried women having kids, whether that's from the get go or, you know, post divorce, whatever it might be, our attitudes have not shifted along with that change. Coming from the Pew Research Center in January 2011, 69% of Americans said that the trend towards single women having children is bad for society. And 61% say that a child needs both a mother and a father to grow up happily. 
Right. And in line with that historical attitude of single mothers are people who need to be pitied, in that same study, they found that the public believes that children of single parents face more challenges than other children. 38% of respondents said that they face a lot more challenges and another 40% say they face just a few more challenges. And I think there are a lot, I mean, we saw just from just anecdotal evidence about various single mom bloggers and things like that. um, A lot of women out there would disagree. A lot of women who are out there raising kids alone would say, hey, we all face challenges, okay, but, you know, my family is a whole family, husband or no husband. Yeah, I mean, and the whole issue of children need both a mother and a father to grow up happily, that is also an argument that is typically used against uh, LGBT families, mm-hmm. for instance. And all of the studies, and there are now a lot of them, and they are methodologically sound, and all conclude that actually, no, it is not the issue of a mother and a father. What really, you know, the strongest correlate to a child's positive outcome has obviously nothing to do with your parents' sexual orientation, but it boils down to resources. Oh, yeah. The kinds of resources that kids have access to. And yeah, a lot of times two is better than one Mm -hmm. because two people can offer a lot of times more resources than other people can't. But to say collectively... Single moms, you are just doing a disservice to, you know, all of the millions of your children out there Mm -hmm. is also uh, an unfair generalization. Yeah. And we're going to get into those resources, the income issues, education, child care, et cetera, that single moms are working with when we come right back from a quick break. So we were talking about resources available to families, really, um, and how it's those resources, whether that's educational attainment or whether that is financial resources, how those affect children more so than just the issue of single motherhood itself. Um, so there was this Pew Research study from May 2013 looking at, quote unquote, breadwinner moms. And these are both single and married moms who make more than either their spouse or partner or who just make the most money in the household. Um, and so they found that there are a record number of moms with kids under 18 who were breadwinners in their households, 40%. That is split between women who earned more than husbands, 37%, and single moms who were the majority at 63%. And the thing about the breadwinner stuff is that, oh, yeah, that's great. The woman's making a lot of money. She's supporting her family. That's awesome. However, there is a major income gap. Married breadwinner moms earned a median income of 80 grand in 2011, while single breadwinner moms earned a median income of $23,000. And so for a little perspective, The Atlantic uh, read an article about this um, in September of 2013 and wrote that for single and married women without children, the average difference in income in 2012 was only $857, almost inconsequential compared to the difference between single and married mothers. Yeah, I mean, once you once you toss kids into the mix, it, it, that picture absolutely changes. And if you look, though, at the demographics, the married breadwinner moms are disproportionately white, a little bit older and college educated, the same kind of demographics that are typically linked with higher incomes 
among women Mm -hmm. because, unfortunately, in our society today, I mean, non-white groups are still often marginalized. Right. And when you look at socioeconomic data, there's a lot of marginalization that happens in that as well. And one giant myth, though, about single moms, and especially when you look at single moms and that median income of $23,000, is this misguided idea that single moms just don't work all that much. They're just kind of, you know, they're they're just freeloading off the government as much Mm -hmm. as they can. But that is not the case. Um, 60% of single mothers are in full-time jobs, and that does not include the women who are probably also in part-time jobs as well, who are balancing work with childcare. And on top of that, if you look at those employed moms, single moms, in the United States, according to some data that came out in December of 2012, American single moms work more hours, yet have much higher poverty rates than their peers in other high-income countries. Basically, it looked at the condition of single moms in the United States compared with a, a similarly wealthy countries and found that, in a lot of ways, single moms do not have it easy, specifically in the U.S. Right, and if we're looking at those poverty rates in particular, this is census data from uh, September 2013, uh, single mother families in poverty increased for the fourth straight year to 4.1 million or 41.5 percent. And that coincides with longer term trends of declining marriage and out of wedlock births. But there are a lot of things you have to consider. There's a lot of subtext here. It's not just like, oh, you have a baby and you don't work and you blah, blah. There's a lot. There's a lot of factors that influence this stuff. There was an international labor organization report that The Atlantic reported on talking about how the U.S. is the only country in the top 15 most competitive ones that does not mandate paid maternity leave, paid sick leave, and does not guarantee paid vacation time. New parents in the U.S. are guaranteed their jobs for 12 weeks after the arrival of a new baby under the Family Medical Leave Act of 1993, but that's it. It's not like you're getting paid. And so imagine how hard that struggle is to maintain a full-time job and you're a single mom and you need to collect a paycheck. Uh, you need to take care of your kid. Like, I mean, these are the issues that we've talked about before, too, just in general, talking about working moms. Mm-hmm. I mean, trying to balance the two, even if you do have a partner, is challenging in and of itself. But that child care piece mm-hmm. is so huge. And reading about this reminded me of an anecdote that we read a while ago for, um, I think it was our episode on daycare at workplaces, whether Mm -hmm. or not bringing your kids to work is good for the bottom line. And there, I mean, one of many stories about how single working mom has, you know, her kid gets sick. She has to stay home, loses her job because of it. Mm -hmm. Or vice versa. You have so many horror stories of, say, a mom who might be out of work is looking for a job. Well, she can't just leave her kids at home. Right. So, but how can she go to drop them off at daycare? Because daycare is so wildly expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. There is an article in Think Progress about this, talking about how the Department of Health and Human Services considers spending 10% of a family's income on child care is the benchmark of affordability. When it comes to single parents, the average cost of center-based infant care is more than 25% of the median income in every state. Mm-hmm. So it's it's impossible. I mean, these women are often up against incredible economic odds. Yeah, and, and studies have shown, not to sound completely vague, but I mean, studies have shown that 
women who live close to a family core fare better in the workplace. They they can go get jobs and, and find those resources because they have an extended family to help care for the child. Women who are more on their own don't have a mom, a grandma, somebody to go to to help take care of little Johnny. You know, they are going to have a harder time maintaining that high paying job. Right. I mean, and especially in these emergency situations, if somebody gets sick, mm-hmm. for instance, I mean, that can put the job, you know, a woman's job immediately in peril. Um, so let's talk, though, about speaking of kids and emergency situations. A lot of the hue and cry about the rise of single motherhood is that it's terrible for children. And this also gets to that issue of resources of, mm-hmm. you know, two parents better than one. Um, because there are all these studies showing that kids of single parents, and it usually focus on, focuses on children of single moms because we make up a bulk of the single parents. These studies find that kids are often at a higher risk for mental and emotional health problems. Right. For instance, a 2003 Swedish study found that kids of single moms were twice as likely to have psychiatric illness, attempt suicide, or have alcohol-related problems as those in two-parent households. And the researchers said that many of the differences, though, could be accounted for by the economic and social circumstances of the parents as measured by social benefits and renting and things like that. Um, you know, kids, these kids are also struggling with lower grades, more absenteeism, higher school dropout rates. But like we've said, I'm trying to drive home how important it is to keep in mind the different factors that could affect this, because not all single moms have always been single. Because a lot of single moms are divorced, and if you're having kind of an acrimonious split, sometimes kids get pulled into that conflict. And that can have more of an impact than just being a single parent in and of itself. Now, census data also show, though, speaking of divorced parents, that they tend to have higher educational attainment, they're likelier to own their home, and are less likely to be poor than never married parents. So that's a degree of stability that's tied with children's success. And so, again, it seems like when we're talking about single moms, a lot of times we heap the judgment on these women as people for, you know, putting their kids through this awful life choice, apparently, that they've made. Whereas when you really dig into the data, the correlates aren't to the moms, aren't so much to the parents, but are to all these socioeconomic Mm -hmm. factors that typically preclude people towards success. Right. Such as education. Right. Uh, we read one post over on Slate by Pamela Gwynn Kripke, uh, back in January 2013, um, who is a single mom. Uh, she was married when, um, she and her husband had their two girls, but she believes her kids are all the more resilient, tough, and independent thanks to growing up in, as she puts it, an all-girl house. They're forced to look out for themselves. They learn the meaning of thrift, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and plus, uh, Kripke argues that single moms are aware of the stereotypes that exist out there, that they're going to fail their children. And so they work all the harder not to. And so we have to remember that there's like all different shades of, of family dynamics and that it is not the fact that the mother is single, that she is unmarried, that is going to affect the child negatively. There's so many things that positively and negatively affect children. Yeah. I mean, and you could also spin off into studies talking about how, um, you know, parents who unmarried parents 
who might have multiple boyfriends or girlfriends coming through the house, that's bad for kids. Or how um, parents who are unmarried at the time that their kids are born are more likely to eventually split up. That's bad for the kid. I mean, there's so many different ways to slice and dice this. But clearly, as Katie Royfe, <laughs> lover, hater, talks about in the New York Times, you can't just judge single moms. There's so many of them. Like you said, there's so many different shades of all these family dynamics. I mean, she's a single mom with two kids by two different dads, to which sociologists would say, oh, that is the worst. You know, the more the more parents you have out there, the worse it is for the stability. But she says, no, I mean, these kids are benefiting from what she calls the variety and richness of different kinds of families and that her kids are totally fine. But she also acknowledges, and this is important too, and I have a feeling it's the same situation as that Slate writer where she is writing this from a position of privilege as an NYU professor who also gets gigs with the New York Times living in Manhattan and can afford to do so. Her situation as a single mom with two different dads, much different than a single mom with two different dads living in Mobile, Alabama. Yes. And Naomi Khan and June Carbone, who are the authors of Marriage Markets, How Inequality is Remaking the American Family, would argue that while Royfi is well off and is successful and her kids are happy, healthy and provided for, um, they they do look at those lower income families in lower income communities and they argue that those women should stay single. Because they were using the example of this one uh, no longer couple um, uh, in a low, low income community, basically sent, talking about how the mom didn't want to have to drag this dead weight, basically this dead weight of her boyfriend behind her and was much better off um, just being on her own, raising their child, relying instead on her mother for help with child care while she went to work and earned a living. And uh, these authors kind of dive into uh, statistics about a higher percentage of men having trouble finding employment these days, blue-collar men without a college degree having it worse. And they also talk about how people in working-class socioeconomic groups are less likely than people in higher uh, higher earning groups are less likely to report that marriage works out for most people they know. And so they talk about, like, well, why would people in these groups get married? Aren't they better off just staying as single moms, raising their kids the best way they know how? They have control over bedtime. They have control over child care. They have total say over everything in the child's life. But then how do you sort of resolve that with these other findings that uh, of the resources of two people bringing two sets of resources into, you know, a child's life? Better than one. But I guess that depends on what resources you're bringing. If you're yeah. bringing, say, you know, an alcohol problem and credit card debt, then those are not resources that you need. Right. In the example couple that the authors were citing, they were basically saying that the the mother had pretty, pretty good stable resources. She had a good family behind her who was willing to help out, whereas the father of the child did have issues with money he couldn't even afford. You know, if he wanted to pursue custodial parent rights, he really didn't even have the money or ability to pursue that in the courts. So it's kind of this whole thing of like, okay, yes, two parent resources are better. But then they're talking about how in some dynamics, 
perhaps the strong, stable resources of just a single mother are better than throwing kind of a deadbeat dad into the mix. Right. And I mean, this is the theme that is emerging so much in this more contemporary conversation on single motherhood, which is the issue of class. Mm -hmm. Because now what it looks like is that on one end of the socioeconomic spectrum, we have a lot of single moms who are unfairly stereotyped as welfare queens Mm -hmm. and just, you know, just taxing our system and really in reality getting zero help that they need to make sure that they're able to, you know, rise up out of that situation and have kids who can, you know, improve their lot as well. And then on the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, you have single mothers by choice, which, you know, are the Tina Fey's in 30 Rock or Baby Mama who are self-sufficient economically and are going out of their way planning, you know, they don't want to get married, but they want to have a kid because they're wealthy enough to do so. But we treat we don't we treat them so differently. Right. You know, like, oh, yeah, look what you did there. Yeah. And then, had a oh, baby. and then, oh, look at you. Look at you. How brave of you. What a what a liberal woman you are. You right. know, like it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem right that one group is so stigmatized, but the other is just lauded where really what's going on is a widening and widening and widening gap between socioeconomic classes in the United States. Yeah. But whatever end of the spectrum on, you're being accused of being greedy, being selfish, being a freeloader, like we talked about. It doesn't matter if you're Roy Fee or if you're the example couple in Khan and Carbone's article. You're somehow like gaming the system. And yeah. Roy Fee does write about how like, oh, you're just jealous. Like, that's her thing. Like, oh, uh, well, I'm not playing your marriage game and you're just jealous of me. But I mean, I think it's... <laughs> It's so much more than that. And as we've shown, I mean, this goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years viewing single, unmarried mothers as suspicious and outside of our normal social bounds, basically. And so to combat uh, some of those single mom stereotypes, uh, you know, Kristen mentioned single mothers by choice. Um, that's an actual group that was founded in 1981 by psychotherapist Jane Matz. Um And their goal is basically to not only provide support and information to single women who are considering or have chosen single motherhood, but to sort of advocate for tearing down those those ugly stereotypes. Yeah. About what about the selfishness and greed that? Yeah, I'm not sure, uh, you know, the, the, the selfish argument, whether it's about women who are choosing to have a kid without a man in the picture or whether it's about women choosing not to have kids. Like I, I the selfish uh, argument around children is, is always sort of ugly. Yeah. Well, and the, it's just the suspicion with which we like, and by we, I mean, societally see these two groups as either suspicious that you didn't make enough of a choice or suspicious that you were too calculated. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it yes. doesn't make sense. So many, so many advocates for single motherhood, um, and it's the same kind of argument you hear among gay and lesbian couples that like, why are you telling me that I'm uh, like too casual about this or like I'm not going into it the right or regular way? Shouldn't we be saying like, oh, obviously that child is so wanted if I'm if I'm putting in the time, energy and sometimes the money, depending on it's an, if it's an adoption or or whatever, uh, you know, shouldn't we be arguing that I'm like super 
wanting this child and then I've thought a lot about it if I'm going to go it alone. Well, and that's a big reason why a lot of studies looking at LGBT parenting have found that the child outcomes, because we are now like a generation or even getting into second generation of kids who have grown up with gay parents, finding that not only do they fare just as well as kids with straight parents, but sometimes they do even better because of that you know, highly wanted yeah. factor. If it's the support that your parent or parents throw behind you. Yeah. But the one big question mark in this whole conversation, Caroline, that left me so wanting from all of the things that we were reading about this single motherhood issue is where are the men in this conversation? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we mentioned like, uh, you know, the, those authors who posit that you know, single moms in lower socioeconomic brackets, better off single because of the potential of encountering deadbeat dads. But where are where are the men in this conversation? Mm-hmm. Because they have to be at least half of this equation biologically to to create these children mm-hmm. of single moms. So why aren't why aren't we engaging more men in this conversation? Why aren't I don't know, like, why aren't they being pulled more into solutions for it because single moms are stigmatized so much and yet they're at least caring for the children. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's discussions around like, like we touched on earlier as far as um, single moms historically being perceived as having their hand out, whereas uh, single dads tend to earn more and maybe they're seen as being more stable or something, being able to provide more for their, for their kids. I don't know. But um Historians Shirley Swain and Renat Howe point out in their book, Single Mothers and Their Children, Disposal, Punishment and Survival in Australia, that single motherhood is a normative condition faced by any sexually active heterosexual woman. And the stigma comes from patriarchal attempts to control women's behavior. So if you're a single dad, it's kind of like, hey, Good for you. Yeah. Good for you for taking care of this kid. Like, that's awesome for stepping up to the plate. If you're a single mom, you're like totally outside the periphery of normal society and what is normal for women. And yet, statistically more than ever before, that's just not the case. And I don't think that we're going to see the pendulum swing back Mm -mm. at all. And I don't think that that's necessarily a problem. I don't think that this is a sign that uh, the moral fabric of our nation is qu- quickly unraveling. So I think that, if anything, it's high time to stop stigmatizing these women and really start taking a closer look at the underlying issues mm-hmm. that might perpetuate some of the negative outcomes associated with single motherhood. Like child care. Like I mean, that's a huge one. Care. Exactly. I mean, there are all of these resources that that women that mothers, whether they're single or not, need and aren't being given. And even just education for kids. I mean, just improving the education system in general mm-hmm. is going to give kids a leg up no matter what, how much money their parents or parent makes. Right. So we want to hear, though, from single moms, single dads out there. I know that you have been largely left out of this conversation. And I just said, well, where are they? Well, I guess we're not talking about you. But that's just because when it comes to single parenting, you know, it is overwhelmingly women, and they're usually the focus, but we know that you're out there, too. So let's start a conversation, shall we? Let's start a dialogue. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or send us a Facebook message as well. And we've got a couple of Facebook messages to share with you right now. 
So I've got a letter here from a guy named Jerry, and this is a little unconventional. We've never done this on Stuff I Never Told You Before, but... Jerry was writing us because he writes, I'm a 16-year-old gay high school senior from a rural area on the big island of Hawaii. I'm a longtime listener, and everyone asks me why I listen to a show mainly focused on female topics, but nevertheless, I absolutely love it. I've never written in before, but I'm at a life-changing time in my life, and I've come to ask for assistance. So, less than a month ago, I got accepted to UC Berkeley. Congratulations, Jerry. He writes, although I'm only 16, I'm graduating a year early by taking my junior and senior years concurrently. I've done exceptionally well considering that I'm an LGBT teen in an isolated area living with my single mom and three younger sisters. We're very poor, and throughout my high school years, we've lived in a tent and a shack like home. And he goes on to say that UC Berkeley has offered him as much financial aid as they can, but he still has to pay over $20,000 for the first year because he is an out-of-state student. He writes, I'm currently applying to as many scholarships and grants as possible to pay the high tuition cost. And so to help fill the gap, he has started a GoFundMe.com campaign to help make his dreams of higher education possible. And I went and checked out his campaign. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to Jerry. And if you listeners would like to donate, I think the levels are like $5 or $20. It's very affordable. But to help this... LGBT kid from Hawaii, go to Berkeley. You can go to GoFundMe.com slash Making Berkeley Possible and donate to someone who sounds like a really fantastic kid. And Jerry, I hope that you're able to go to Berkeley and that all of your dreams come true. Aw, good luck. Yeah. Well, I have a letter here from Dennis in response to our Women in Gaming episode. And he was talking about the parallels uh, and overlap with LGBT people in gaming. And as he points out, especially since women are obviously part of the LGBT gaming community as well. He says, I love video games from violent horror games like Resident Evil to things that are a stretch to call games like Animal Crossing because I've grown up playing games and with these characters and have grown to love their stories, even if some of them feature annoying tropes against women. But I feel like my credibility as a gamer is questioned because I am gay online and sometimes in person as well. I see it as an even larger issue to many pro-gaming journalists at Polygon, Kotaku, and GameSpot who are women and queer in one way or another. See the whole debacle behind Caroline Pettit not giving Grand Theft Auto V a perfect score and pointing out its racism, homophobia, misogyny, and transphobia. Not to mention the dismissal of these issues by major gaming publications, web comics like Penny Arcade, giving gamers ammunition to be misogynistic and transphobic despite Mike Krahulik's blanket apology. In my opinion, the PA community's continued use of transphobia and rape jokes in their comment section shows the apology went unheard by the people who needed to hear it most. I haven't really stepped into the random matchup worlds of Halo or similar games because I'm more of a Nintendo fanboy, but the few times that I have, I've been harassed for being gay. It usually starts when people will throw a homophobic slur towards me, and I either say, yes, I am, and people being able to figure out I'm gay from my voice and start harassing me for it, or I just quit the match out of anger from being harassed. Now, any random online matchups I play are games in which there is no verbal communication with other players unless you're friends with one another like Pokemon. I just don't want to deal with con- constantly being called slurs in the place I go to escape reality. Reality being a place where I am often street harassed for being gay. I don't want to stop playing games, but I also don't want people who love gaming to feel like they can't be in a safe place to play. I hope one day we can be safe with our identities as women and LGBT people or people of color. 
So keep doing what you're doing because you're doing it well. So thank you, Dennis. We appreciate your letter. And uh, I would like to point out, I think that is Dennis's second letter we have read. Dennis, you're an all-star. You're a sminty all-star, as is everyone who writes into us. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send us your letters. To find all the links to our social medias, podcasts, blogs, and videos, there's one place to go. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 